I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From iHeartMedia, this is Missing in Alaska, the story of two congressmen who vanished in 1972, and my quest to figure out what happened to them. I'm your host, John Walczak. March 4, 1974, Tucson, Arizona. The sun is setting. The temperature sinks below 60. There's a light breeze. It's early in the evening at the El Dorado Lodge, a luxurious desert resort. A gorgeous tree-lined road leads up to a complex of old, stone-clad buildings. Tranquil mountains lurk in the distance. Sitting at a bar is Tom Davis, a detective with the Arizona Department of Public Safety. He's joined by a supervisor and a reporter. They're all undercover. And it's a U-shaped bar. And... On one side is the public side. On the other side is a room. And it's just, you know, it's just an alcove. Well, if you sat on the public side, you could see what was going on in the alcove. Lo and behold, here comes this party. And it's Jerry and his wife and his, uh, one of the people that he had gone to Anchorage with and, you know, it, it, for me, being a brand new guy, this was fascinating. Jerry is Jerome Jerry Max Paisley, a 33-year-old murderer and bomber with close ties to two prominent mafia families. So we sat there and we just kept making notes and watching all the activities and the pictures being taken. 
And boom, it's noted that Jerry married Peggy. Peggy is Peggy Begich, the widow of Congressman Nick Begich. At the time of the wedding, did you know who Peggy was? I probably did, but I probably didn't put any significance to it. Were you aware at the time of the wedding that Peggy was the widow of a missing congressman? Uh, yeah, but it didn't take it seriously. Why? Because it was, a, it, it was an accident, plane crash. Pause for a minute. Let this sink in. 16 months and 16 days after her husband, a U.S. congressman, disappeared in Alaska, Peggy Begich married Jerry Paisley, a mobster, at a wedding in Arizona. It sounds sensational. It is sensational. But I want to be clear. It's true. It's not some baseless conspiracy. It did happen. I have a copy of the marriage license and photos of the reception. In fact, I have the original photos. Tom Davis gave them to me. The pictures I gave you with Jerry, that's the last I have, uh, unless I resurrect. Uh, Those are the originals I took and sent to you. But you can look at the paper and tell. That that came out of the book, out of the Bible. This is from your Bible. Yep. That's the last existing piece. Davis, who had a distinguished 36-year career in law enforcement, worked on a small team that battled organized crime in Arizona. He had a secret book, a so-called Bible, which listed about 100 local mobsters and their associates. In the Bible was Jerry Paisley. Man, Paisley, where to start? He's so important to this story. I need to tell you about him, his history, his personality, his shocking claims but I don't want to glorify him. He was a murderer and a bomber, an abusive, violent man. He doesn't deserve glory. Paisley was born in Detroit in 1941. He grew up in a bad neighborhood. As a teen, he enlisted in the Navy. I don't know much about his early years, just bits and pieces I picked up along the way, but I can share with you an incident that occurred when he was 19 a violent attack that illustrates the rough, jagged nature of his life from birth to death. On May 3rd, 1960, Paisley was hitchhiking in California when four men accosted him. Using either a razor or a sharp piece of glass, Paisley wasn't sure which, they carved a four-inch cross and two-letter Zs into his arm. Thankfully, the wounds were superficial. He didn't need stitches. Two years later, after the Navy discharged him, Paisley returned to Detroit. That's where he started working for the Licavoli family, an organized crime syndicate led by Pete Horseface Licavoli Sr. That's also where he befriended Pete Sr.'s sons, especially Pete Jr. In fact, the two men got close enough that, in 1974, Pete Licavoli Jr. attended Paisley's wedding to Peggy Begich. Pete Jr. and his wife, Kathy, even traveled with Peggy and Paisley on their honeymoon in Mexico. The Licavolis were a mid-tier mob family, nothing special. Mid-century, they moved from Detroit to Tucson. Paisley went with them. Soon thereafter, another much more famous mafia family also moved to Tucson, the Bananos. Remember Vito Corleone, Marlon Brando's character from The Godfather? Corleone was based, in part, on famed mafia don Joe Bonanno Sr. 
During the 60s in Tucson, Paisley befriended Bonanno's sons, Bill and Joe Jr. He was captivated by the family's flashy infamy and gritty glamour. In 1971, he even made a brief cameo in Honor Thy Father, a bestseller on the Bananos written by legendary author Gay Talese. I asked Talese, who's 88, if he remembers Paisley. He said he doesn't. That was a long time ago. The Bananos were not only celebrities in Tucson. They were well-known throughout the nation. Joe Sr. was, quite literally, the Big Cheese, a nickname he got by sinking his teeth into the dairy industry. Laugh, go ahead. But there was a lot of money to be made in the cheese trade. Counterfeit mozzarella, money laundering, stuff like that. Bonanno was a big deal. One of the most important mafiosos in American history. The patriarch of one of the so-called five families, which dominated organized crime in New York City during the early 20th century. Bonanno saw himself as a gentleman. He liked to say that he lived by old school values. Booze, but not narcotics. Murder, sure, but only if you deserved it. But he distorted reality. The Bonanno family was brutal. They were violent gangsters. They maimed and murdered and bombed and extorted and kidnapped and committed fraud. Later, they tried to rehabilitate their image. But Joe Bonanno didn't become Joe Bonanno by being a polite man who just dabbled in bootlegging. For three decades, from the 1930s to 1960s, Bonanno held an iron grip on his family. His stranglehold began to unravel in the mid-60s when he got greedy and tried to assassinate rival mob bosses. The plot failed, igniting a bloody mob war called the Banana War, or, as the press sarcastically dubbed it, the Banana Split. See, one of Bonanno's nicknames, which he absolutely hated, was Joe Bananas, hence the name of his signature war. At one point during the war, Bonanno was kidnapped and, for a while, he disappeared. It's thought, though, that he staged the kidnapping in order to avoid testifying before a grand jury. When he eventually resurfaced, he decided to make a strategic retreat to Tucson, where he, quote, retired. But that was bullshit. He was diminished but not dead, and he certainly wasn't retired. I know I'm throwing a million names at you, so let's recap. We have A, Jerry Paisley, who married Peggy Begich, the widow of Congressman Nick Begich, in 1974. B, the Licavolis, a mid-tier mob family from Paisley's hometown of Detroit, who relocated to Tucson and for whom Paisley worked. And C, the Bonanos, a famous mob family from New York who also relocated to Tucson and for whom Paisley also worked. Jerry Paisley, the Licavolis, the Bonanos, they're all tied together. But why Tucson? It seems random, right? An odd place for the mob? To me, not really. It's sunny, it's pretty, removed from the violence of Chicago and New York and Detroit. It makes sense. And Arizona had lax laws, which allowed the mob to easily launder money. Arizona was Switzerland in the United States. Arizona had a blind trust system in its banking system that allowed people to hide monies here just as effectively as they could in, in Switzerland. And the, the, the blind trust accounts that could be set up with laundered money, the bank accounts themselves could also own real estate. And when I first began working over here in the early 70s, maybe 40% of Maricopa County was owned by number. And nobody knew who owned anything. It was all through blind trust accounts at a bank. That's Don Devereaux, a seasoned investigative reporter in Arizona who covered organized crime for decades. 
He's best known for his never-ending investigation into the 1976 assassination of reporter Don Bowles, who was killed in Phoenix by a car bomb, something we'll cover later. Devereaux also dug into both the Bonanno and Licavoli families. With two major mob families in Tucson, you'd figure there would be some bitter rivalry, so many angry egos crammed into a small desert city. But that wasn't the case. When Licavoli moved out here from Detroit, uh, and he was a friend of Joe's, and, and invited the Licavolis and lots of other mob people from around the country to move to Tucson or to Phoenix to retire. Licavoli largely came to the Tucson area uh, to, to retire. Bonanno was still active when he was living in Tucson, but Licavoli largely had left Detroit behind. And there was a retired mob guy living comfortably in Tucson um, on a place called the Grace Ranch, as I, as I recall, with his family uh, and close friends of Bonanno. And close enough, they, you know, they shared the same accountant. Um, they were, you know, there were no secrets between those guys. They were... Uh, close friends and not competitors and, you know, happily, you know, seeing each other as, as good friends. Yet even though the Bonanos and Licavolis maintained peace between their respective families, their presence was detrimental to Tucson as a whole. In the late 60s, the city became a hot spot for mob violence, most notably a series of high-profile bombings. Many of these bombings were tied to extortion attempts, insurance scams, and vigilante payback. The motivation behind some, though, was more complicated. In July 1968, the homes of both Joe Bonanno Sr. and Pete Licavoli Sr. were bombed. Uh, there was a war started between Bonanno and Licavoli by a rogue FBI agent named David Hale back in the day. Hale began planting bombs on both the Bonanno and the Licavoli people as if they were fighting back and forth between themselves, trying to start some sort of an internecine mob war between Licavoli and Bonanno. And it obviously didn't work, and David Hale got exposed as having you know, done this himself as an FBI agent. David Hale denied that he was behind the bombings. Hale was never convicted of any crime tied to the bombings. He didn't respond to interview requests. In 1968, someone also bombed the house of a prominent judge named Ivo DeConcini. DeConcini had been friends with Joe Bonanno. But later, when his son Dennis was elected to the U.S. Senate, he distanced himself from the mob boss. I just said someone bombed Judge DeConcini's home. But guess who that someone was? Jerry Paisley. The same Jerry Paisley who, only six years later, would marry Peggy Begich. Several sources told me Paisley was behind the DeConcini bombing. Paisley was something of a fixer, they said. A wannabe gangster. He was, technically, a mobster but low in seniority, more the guy you turn to to break some legs or chuck some dynamite over a fence than the mastermind of any operation. To my knowledge, he was responsible for at least three bombings, including the DeConcini bombing. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff in my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. 
Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. 
So how on earth did Jerry Paisley, a mobster who bombed a judge's house, end up marrying Peggy Begich, the widow of a missing congressman? How did they meet? The official story is this. In late 1973, about a year after Nick Begich vanished, Peggy was with a friend at the Holiday Inn in Anchorage when she ran into Paisley, who was tending bar. They hit it off, and a few months later, in March 1974, they got hitched in Tucson. I've already told you why the mob was in Tucson, but why was the mob in Alaska in the 70s? Why was Jerry Paisley in Alaska in the 70s? One word, oil. After the discovery of oil in 1968 at Prudhoe Bay, Alaska boomed. Everything in modern Alaska history can be split into pre-1968 and post-1968. Pre-1968, Alaska was scenic and had timber and bears. A stereotype, sure, but people in the lower 48 didn't really care about it, except for its natural beauty, some of its resources, and at the height of the Cold War, its strategic location near the Soviet Union. Post-1968, Alaska was an oil state, a state with immense wealth waiting to be tapped, a state with mounds of money just waiting to be pumped into people's pockets. Pre-1968, there was crime, but it wasn't exorbitant. Post-1968, it boomed. Pre-1968, you could still find affordable housing. Post-1968, with a crush of new workers, you couldn't. It was during this boom atmosphere, in 1970, that Alaskans first elected Nick Begich to the U.S. House. Begich had run a campaign promising to maximize oil prosperity. But, importantly, he also acknowledged the problems it stirred up. Here's an ad he ran in 1970. You don't have to be an economist to know that we have a critical housing shortage. All you have to do is try to find a place to live. Five years ago, the typical monthly payments for a $20,000 home would be about $100. Now, a $20,000 home, that's if you can find one, would be well over $200 a month. America's leading housing official recently stated that less than 20% of Americans can really afford to buy a home. That's the problem nationwide. Alaska's situation is worse. There are practical solutions. Nick Begich finds practical solutions. As a state senator, he's been doing it for eight years. And he's been vocal about it. Nick Begich has always wanted you to know where he stood. He still does. Nick Begich is Alaska's man for Congress. Begich went on to help pass the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, or ANCSA, a monumental piece of legislation that removed a major obstacle blocking construction of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. But the pipeline still faced countless legal, political, and environmental hurdles. It wasn't until March 1975, two and a half years after Begich vanished, that construction finally began. Tomorrow morning, after years of planning, court fights, and stockpiling of materials, construction of the Alaska oil pipeline begins. It will run almost 800 miles from the north slope of Alaska to the port of Valdez. The pipeline is supposed to be finished in about two years, at a cost of at least $6 billion. The big boom is already underway in Alaska. Ask the people in the city of Fairbanks, for example. Jack Perkins did, and here is his report. It used to be in Fairbanks that keeping the snow shoveled off the roof was one of the main problems. But today, with the coming of the pipeline, Fairbanks is a boom town and there are new problems they never thought of here before. 
used to be in Fairbanks. You could make a telephone call right away without having to try for an hour, without getting buzzed off. But with the pipeline, the local phone system is flooded with 54% more calls than a year ago and can't handle them. Used to be you could get an apartment, nothing fancy but shelter, for a couple hundred dollars. Now, rents have doubled and tripled. One bedroom, 500 a month, and hardly anything available. Vacancy rate in Fairbanks, about zero. And consider crime rates. Always a drinking town, but arrests for drunkenness now up 135%. Juvenile arrests up 50%. Robberies up 123%. And with all the pipeline workers passing through town with their rolls of money, prostitution arrests up 700%. Many of the people who moved to Alaska long before the oil boom were upset to see their pristine home changing so rapidly. What you're getting here, of course, is what, uh, is what they call progress, isn't it? Uh, that's one name for it. I've heard other names uh, for it which uh, might not be arable. It happens to cities, this bursting and straining toward what is sometimes called progress. But maybe nowhere has it ever happened so much and so fast. And it's not just that people of Fairbanks weren't ready for it. It's that many of them don't want it at all. Jack Perkins, NBC News, Fairbanks, Alaska. Two years later, in June 1977, construction on the pipeline wrapped up. Oil mania reached a fever pitch. Now the riches could really flow. There's oil in the pipeline, the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, this evening. Pump station number one at Prudhoe Bay, 250 miles north of the Arctic Circle, today began pushing heated crude oil into the pipe. Don Oliver was there. Here it is, finally finished after eight years of planning and building. The oil companies rattle off all sorts of superlative statistics about it. 800 miles long, built by a peak workforce of more than 21,000. From one end to the other, it will hold 380 million gallons of oil. The cost, nearly $8 billion. The largest, most expensive project ever attempted by private enterprise. Okay. So, again, by this point, it should be blatantly obvious why the mob, and Jerry Paisley specifically, came to Alaska in the 70s. Oil. Oil is what drew the mob to Alaska. Oil is what drew Paisley to Alaska. It was a black gold rush. Here's Mike Grimes, a retired cop who worked for the Anchorage Police Department. That was the period when Alaska was just booming. It was like a gold rush town because it oil, uh, pipeline being constructed, so much money up there. They had such a dramatic increase in population and everybody coming from somewhere else uh, to get rich in Alaska. And so it was a very fascinating time to be working vice. And there was only three of us on the vice squad at that time. And uh, we had such an influx of prostitution, mainly off the West Coast. So the prostitution uh, industry was just booming up there. And, uh, the gambling, we were having people come from all over with organized crime behind them uh, from other states and set up uh, underground gambling joints in Anchorage. And uh, 
And then after hours, uh, clubs that were illegally serving alcohol. So uh, we were inundated with a three-man vice squad. It was a wild time, and Paisley and the mob wanted to cash in. Drugs, sex work, you name it. Paisley moved to Alaska in 1973 with his close friend, Sal Spinelli. Like Paisley, Spinelli was a mobster with ties to both the Licavoli and Bonanno crime families. When Paisley wed Peggy Begich in March 1974, Spinelli was his best man. After the wedding, when Peggy, Paisley, and Spinelli returned to Anchorage, Spinelli opened a jewelry store with Peggy's oldest son, Nick Begich Jr. Multiple law enforcement sources told me the store was a front for stolen jewelry, including turquoise trafficked from Arizona to Alaska. Nick Begich Jr., now a well-known conspiracy theorist, was only a teenager at the time. He declined interview requests. He was never convicted of any crime pertaining to the theft of jewelry. And again, he was only a kid, a kid who lost his dad and ended up with a violent new stepfather, Jerry Paisley. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As Paisley settled into married life, Peggy Begich, now Peggy Paisley, showered him with money. After Nick, her first husband, disappeared, Peggy had received a windfall of cash, according to documents I found archived at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. There was a $55,000 life insurance policy, which had a double indemnity clause for accidental death, so $110,000 from that. And there was a one-time $42,500 benefit from Congress, plus the balance of Nick's checking and retirement accounts. Altogether, Peggy got at least $158,431.07, about a million dollars today when adjusted for inflation. She inherited other things too, including apartment buildings. Peggy spent much of that money on her new husband, Paisley, the newlyweds honeymooned in Mexico. They were joined on that trip, as I said earlier, by Pete Licavoli Jr. and his wife, Kathy. Peggy bought Paisley expensive jewelry and fancy cars too including a Cadillac Eldorado and a Jaguar XKE. She also bought him a bar. In May 1974, two months after Peggy and Paisley wed, they started a business called Max Inc. I obtained the company's records from the state of Alaska. Peggy was the president, Paisley was the secretary treasurer, and another man, whom I'll discuss later, was the vice president. Max Inc. operated a bar in Anchorage called the Alaska Mining Company the type of watering hole that minted money during the oil boom. It had previously been called the Green Dragon. Here again is Mike Grimes, the retired Anchorage cop who worked vice in the 70s. I heard Paisley was involved in the, what was it called, Alaska Mining Company before it was a Green Dragon, that he was involved in that place with the baggages. And I said, God, what are they doing with this scumbag? You know, because... uh, I mean, I was a lifelong Alaskan. Nick Begich was my congressman. Peggy and Paisley's marriage wasn't exactly common knowledge, at least to the general public. But a good number of politically connected folks and members of law enforcement knew about it. 
Perhaps this is a good time to pause, to examine why the marriage is even newsworthy at all. Because I know what people will say. They'll say I'm reporting it because it's salacious. They'll say I'm trying to sex up this story in order to sell it. But that's not true. They don't know what I know. At first glance, Peggy Begich seems to be a sympathetic character, a woman whose husband vanished, a woman who became a single mother to six kids, a woman who's now a grandmother in her 80s. Typically, her personal life would be none of my business. Sure, she ran for Congress several times after Nick disappeared, so she was, for a while, a public figure. But that's not why I'm reporting this. So bear with me, we have a ways to go. I also want to be clear about something else. I'm not reporting everything I know. I learned a lot, but certain things, while salacious, aren't pertinent to this story, and I'm purposely leaving them out. Also, one more thing. Mark Begich, Peggy's son, served for six years in the U.S. Senate. So let me say, too, that I have no political agenda here. In fact, I think Mark was a good senator, and he was just a kid when all of this happened, a kid traumatized by the loss of his father. Peggy Begich and Mark Begich declined multiple interview requests. Living large on Peggy's money, Paisley spiraled out of control. By 1976, he was heavily into drugs. When Jerry was uh, married to Peggy, he just couldn't leave the cocaine alone. And it's just the cocaine and the women and this and that. And it just, it was terrible to, to watch the deterioration of his and Peggy's relationship. I felt sorry for Peggy, you know, she got herself into something that she probably had no idea. Do you know if she knew of his background, really, when they got married? I would say she did not, but I have no way of knowing for sure. That's Paisley's friend, George Schaefer. I've known Paisley since the early 60s. Uh, I probably knew him better than anybody in Alaska. Schaefer met Paisley in Arizona sometime around 1964. He owned a, uh, a bar. It was a, uh, called the Cabaret Lounge in Tucson, Arizona. And uh, at that time, there was a lot of things going on with the, uh, well, there was all those bombings in Tucson. And they were, there was a f- group of people that were coming in and trying to get a uh, protection racket uh, on with some of the local bar owners around the town. And I was kind of brought in and used as a little bit of a muscle for them. Just uh, they were coming in and intimidating the uh, bar owners themselves, just trying to get them to pay protection money like they did back east. It doesn't work that well in the West. So that's how I originally met Paisley. He was kind of on the other side. And we kind of became friends. But uh, not not to any great extent. When you say he was kind of on the other side, what do you mean by that? Well, he was associated with... Uh, several of the uh, so-called mafia people, mainly the Bonanos. 
and, and uh, Lake of Oli. Paisley, Schaefer said, was a, quote, crazy person. Wherever he went, he caused trouble. As far as the, the deal with Peggy, she did buy him that uh, mining company, which is the bar. I guess you know, you're well aware that I got shot there. I, I don't know the details. I, I do know that you were shot there. Okay. Well, I was shot there by somebody, you know, that no one knew. I mean, it was just a, an incident that I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Paisley had a partner in the bar. Long, You know, his wife gave him that more or less as a wedding gift uh, as far as the ownership in the bar. His partner was a real straight-ace guy, would never break the law. In fact, when I went there to go to work, the only reason he called me in is because his regular bouncer from Phoenix, Ron Moyer was his name, and he had cleaned the bar up as far as riffraff and all that. Well, he he worked two years, had to go on vacation. Jerry wanted me to work there for the two weeks while he was on vacation, and I originally said no, and then he talked me into it anyway. So I, I was just supposed to be paid under the table for two weeks, and his partner said, oh, no, we can't do that. We need to put him on the payroll. Uh, we got to keep everything above board. And so uh, I was lucky that I was on workman comp when I got shot. But Danny Zeminich was the guy's name, his partner's name. Daniel Max Zeminich was the third person who had an ownership stake in Max Inc., the business Peggy and Paisley started after they got married. Zeminich was the company's vice president. The company was called Max Inc. because both Zivinich and Paisley shared the same middle name, Max. Zivinich is a key figure in this story, someone you'll hear about in later episodes. He's still alive. He owns a popular bar in Anchorage. He declined multiple requests for an on-the-record interview. In late 1976, Peggy and Paisley got divorced. Newly single, Paisley moved back to Arizona. For the next 15 years, he was in and out of prison on a variety of charges, including aggravated assault. Sometime around 1992, he was paroled, and he got a job in Phoenix selling cars. There was a a deal where another guy got out of prison that he was in with uh, after a few months. They got together, and uh, there was a gal involved a little bit. I don't know. He's told me the details, and I've forgotten them except that he ended up killing that guy and was going to kill. He told me that he pointed the gun. uh, I guess he killed a couple guys, two of them in the front seat, and he pointed the gun at the girl, and it jammed and didn't go off. Uh, So he didn't kill her. But anyway, now he's wanted by the law, and that's when he came to live with me uh, just for a few weeks. And I got him a job where they didn't even want to know his name, and it was cash under the table. Well, he he destroyed any anything, any kind of friendship we ever had because he ended up uh, robbing some people while he was there. And of course, he left left my truck at the 
Seattle airport. I was on vacation, left my truck at the Seattle airport. I had to go get it. And then I had to explain to the sheriffs. But uh, there was a, he was on the 10 most wanted, and they called him Jealous Jerry. Well, he got so mad about that because that wasn't the story at all. It had nothing to do with the girl, or he he didn't have any affair with her or nothing. But So that's motivated him to turn himself in. And that was in 1993. You just heard Schaefer say Paisley was on the 10 most wanted list, presumably the famous FBI list. Other people told me Paisley was on America's Most Wanted. Neither is accurate. In fact, Paisley was on a show called Prime Suspect, Think of it as a kind of ripoff of America's Most Wanted. We tried to dig up this segment to share it with you, but we couldn't find it. When it aired, sometime in 1992 or 93, Paisley was living with George Schaefer, hiding out from the cops in Eagle Creek, Oregon, about 30 minutes southeast of Portland. By that point, he had murdered at least five people, and he still had murder on his mind. I'll tell you another interesting story before we go, uh, just... I I don't know if you're interested in it, but it was, it, it was an obsession that that Jerry had while he was in Oregon. He was obsessed with wanting to kill a dentist in Safford, Arizona, and evidently the dentist had uh, done something to him uh, while he was in prison in Arizona. He was sent down there to have a tooth pulled or something, and the, the guy wouldn't give him enough Novocaine. And then he told Jerry, I'm here to extract, to extract pain on you, not, not make you feel good. So Jerry uh, was obsessed with that, and he swore someday he was going to kill that dentist. Paisley didn't end up killing the dentist. Instead, in March 1993, he turned himself in. He was subsequently convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. By late 1994, Paisley was 53. He had no chance of getting out, no chance of leniency or a reduced sentence. He was going to die behind bars. That's when he figured, fuck it, what do I have to lose? And he started talking. Next time on Missing in Alaska. Did they blow him up? I don't know. Did JB have him blown up? I don't know. I know I took a fucking package up there and they said it was a bomb. They might have been bullshitting me. Here are your three tasks for the week. First, I'd really like to get a copy of the episode of Prime Suspect that featured Jerry Paisley. I know it aired sometime between June 1992 and March 1993. Help me find it. Second, I'd also like to get a copy of a 1981 special report produced by KGUN, the Tucson ABC affiliate, called The Big Cheese, Joe Bonanno's Notes. Finally, I mentioned earlier that an undercover reporter witnessed Jerry Paisley's wedding to Peggy Begich. I believe that reporter is still alive, possibly living in the UK, but I haven't been able to find him. His name is Alex Dressler, D-R-E-H-S-L-E-R. If you know him, contact us. You can reach us by phone at 1-833-MIA-TIPS. That's 1-833-642-8477. Again, 1-833-642-8477. Or you can reach us via email at tips at iheartmedia.com. That's t 
tips, T-I-P-S, at iHeartMedia.com. Ben Bolin is our executive producer. Paul Deccan is our supervising producer. Chris Brown is our assistant producer. Seth Nicholas Johnson is our producer. Sam Teagarden is our research assistant. And I'm your host and executive producer, John Walzak. You can find me on Twitter at at John Walzak, J-O-N-W-A-L-C-Z-A-K. Footage for this episode was provided by NBC and the Vanderbilt Television News Archive. Special thanks to the Alaska and Polar Regions Collections and Archives at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Missing in Alaska is a co-production of iHeartMedia and Greenfort Media. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.